Hey there, do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at Anchorfish Printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math. That's a great deal. For details, email michael at anchorfishprinting.com. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order. Welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host. And if this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 175, and it's a mailbag episode. Never done one of these. Talked about doing one of these for a really long time. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, my co-host for this, who's going to be hitting me with all the questions, is Ryan Rainbow, who is the show's editor, the guy who makes this show sound so awesome. We're old friends, so this was a lot of fun to do with him. Um, just uh, some inside baseball here. So he asks me a question, which is a very sweet question that I've actually never thought about and I've never known. Um, it might be a, th a thing that just about everybody knows the answer to for themselves, but it's something that I've never thought about. I don't know if it's um, a reflection of being a child of divorce. I have no idea what. Um, spoiler, he asks me where, where, why my parents named me Jeremy, which is something I've never known. So I tried to hit up my dad while we were talking to see if he could give me an answer. He did not respond to me until after the show. And so at the end of this episode, you're going to hear the phone call I had with my dad where he explains it. So stick around for that. Um, there is no bonus episode this week for the Patreon because uh, basically this is all question and answer from uh, everybody who responded from Twitter, from Instagram, from the Patreon. Um, this is a collection of questions that came our way. Um, so I'll just say this. Look, it's the start of the year. If you'd like to support the show, the Patreon is a great place to do it. It means a lot. It's very, very helpful. For three bucks, you can get all the bonus content. For uh, just a little bit more, you can submit questions to upcoming guests. Everybody gets access to the Discord channel. Everybody gets access to the radio hours that I do. Um, all the other random stuff that I'm posting. I, uh, I often post about records I have coming in, um, what I've been enjoying. I do a monthly wrap-up where I sort of talk about my favorite things of the month, and I, uh, I reach out to the subscribers to hear about what all their favorite things are because I love to hear that stuff. Um, there's a lot of collaboration with the people who uh, subscribe. I try to make it more of a community as opposed to um, just me you know, promoting this podcast. Um, so yeah, head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon if you are interested. Again, it helps out a lot. Um, another way to help is if you haven't subscribed to the show on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is you're listening to this, please do so. 
leaving a positive rating and review. Those things help a lot. Um, I think that's it. So without further ado, here is the mailbag episode, the first ever mailbag for episode 175. I appreciate you all so much. Thank you. And let's go. I'm joined today by my editor, my man who makes the show sound so good, a friend for well over a decade, Ryan Rainbow. How's it going, Ryan? What is going on, Jeremy? What's up to all the firsties out there? That's what you call your listeners, right? The firsties? Uh, you know, there was there was jokes made about this between you and I uh, earlier, which I do feel like I should start to adapt some sort of uh, nickname thing uh, the way like Marin does the what the fuckers. Um, I just need to know if I'm going to be able to do it naturally. And uh, I need you to coach me on that. So so just just what's up, my firsties? Yeah, what's up, firsties? I think I think it flows naturally. And then you can unlock a whole new Patreon tier, the Thirsty Firsties, if they really want to get in on some exclusives. You know, maybe a water bottle as a merch item. Oh, we're already making money, baby. Now we're cooking with gas. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But but I'm psyched to be here. Like you said, uh, I do edit and produce the show, so I get to hear all the episodes. I'm probably the the most dedicated firsty out of everybody. And, uh, you know, um, I've been... uh, famously fired by so many celebrities and i'm excited to add you to the list later on oh that's incredible yeah that's that was the point of this whole thing just to eventually know that i get to fire you and then i just get to add to that tier um i i think it's important for for uh for the listeners to get some background on you because you're one of the most interesting friends i've had for a long time you've had a bunch of very wild jobs and you also have your own podcast but let's first talk about your own podcast you do a show called meep meep which is a Roadrunner Records podcast. Yes, that you have been on. Do you remember that? I have. Vision of Disorder? Yeah, Vision of Disorder. You and Mike Kennedy of Vision of Disorder fame talked about Vision of Disorder. But yeah, I do a show about uh, albums released on Roadrunner Records with the artists and people that made the records on Roadrunner Records. So um, you and Mike Kennedy were on about Vision of Disorder. But Anybody that you might already associate with Roadrunner, Fear Factory, Suffocation. Remind me, did you do a Glassjaw episode? Uh, famously recorded a Glassjaw episode that was then asked to not be released. Oh, okay. So That's a uh, bummer. It has t- t- TBD, but it wasn't with... Uh, with Daryl, who I know is a former firsty, so maybe we can make that happen in the future. Yeah, yeah. But did you end up talking to anybody from Glassjaw that you just like would potentially do again? I talked to somebody from Glassjaw that I will not talk to again. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, and then, so you also tour a ton. We tour. We both toured a lot uh, in the last. I don't know. I guess you toured. I think you toured a lot more than me this year. What are some of the tours that you did this year? Well, this year, yeah, I did a lot of crazy things. So I do, um, I work with WWE, so I fly out to all their non-televised events and work for them. I worked with, uh, also on the other end of that spectrum, Chris Jericho, who is a professional wrestler in uh, All Elite Wrestling. He also has a rock and roll band called Fozzie, and we did tours with both wrestling and and uh, the music. Um, I toured with, uh, recently, this band called Entheos. We did some sold-out shows with Lorna Shore for Christmas, which was very cool. But today, what we're doing, we're not talking about the Meepsters. We're not talking about, we are talking about the Firsties. We're talking about the Mailbag. And I yes. wanted to bring up two things about the Mailbag. First of all, I have my own questions for you. Oh, but- okay that I've never gotten to ask you before, but this mailbag, these are all digital pieces of mail. We got any analog mail coming through. You got a PO box that the firsties can write into. You know, what's funny is to, I set up a PO box for touche once and with how little 
mail we got slashes slash like how little I found myself going to even check it. I'm just not responsible enough to to rock a PO box. You're not responsible enough to just check it. To just, I mean, in the sense of, I feel like I'd be bad at like promoting it, and then mm-hmm. I'd for like paying whatever you'd have to pay every single month. I'm just like for like the potential six pieces of mail I might get. I don't know. Six, six is a lot. All right. So, what is your experience with the post office, though, on a personal level? Do you have a good oh, I love it. It's my favorite. Yeah, I love the post office. I, 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 my future is likely in, in as being a mail carrier. I, it's, it seems like the best job in the entire world. You just get to kind of live on your own time. You got your headphones in. Um, I love doing mail order. I know the system very well, very well. So, like. I don't know. I'm a big fan. Where is this leading? What what, what are you curious about? No, I just, I was, (laughs) you know, there was that famous run a couple years ago of like save the post office because people thought that it was going to go away. And, uh, you know, I wasn't on that train, but I didn't know how you, how you felt about it. Now, (laughs) I am grateful for the post office when I do get my packages, but I do have a PO box uh, that I got for security purposes so that they would make their way to me and avoid yeah. uh, porch pirates and the post offices who takes my packages more than anybody. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, but here's what, here's my, here's my question. I'm going to jump ahead of the line of everybody that I've always. Sure. Let's go. You. Do you know why you were named Jeremy? I don't actually. Do you have a family member that was named Jeremy that maybe I like, don't know. No, I, my, my middle names are after people where, um, yeah, like, uh, my, my dad's name is Anthony. My middle name, my, I have two middle names, Anthony and my dad's, uh, my dad's middle name is Jennings. So my second middle name is Jennings. So I'm like Jeremy, Anthony Jennings, Balm. Um, but as far as Jeremy, I don't think I ever got an actual answer to why I'm that this we could file that under like the million questions that I probably should have asked my parents or should have asked like my mom before she passed or or something but yeah I never you know it's it's a really funny question should I just like text my dad out of the blue right now and just say why why was I named Jeremy absolutely <laughs> do you know why your brother because you have a brother right I do yeah do you know why he has his name because I find that people know more about their siblings names than they do their own name I don't know why he's Chris, but yeah, now, man, now you got me, you got me really wondering. We're going to funny question, dad. Nothing funny about it. (laughs) Why was I named Jeremy? We'll see. He's on the road. I think he, he and his, uh, his wife, um, drive to Missouri like five or six times a year. And I think they're doing it right now. Would it be cheaper to fly? Absolutely. But does do they choose to drive constantly? Yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, that's my dad's energy. So, well, yeah, we'll see. We're we're gonna hopefully get an answer on this by the end of the, this recording. Well, that's an exciting cliffhanger to to bring the show to a a, a beginning to, not a conclusion, yeah. a beginning. But let's get to uh, let's get to the actual the actual questions. You ready to answer some questions from the? Let's persons? go. All right. So first we got Sam, kind of a more uh, recent situation for you. Sam wants to know, what was your favorite Death Heaven song to watch from this tour? So with their, they were playing Sunbather from start to finish and Dreamhouse, which is the first song on the record, which is one of their biggest songs, if not their biggest song, every night, no matter what, was always exciting to see. Just because not only is it 
like the big song. And there's always something kind of funny when a band does an album play and their biggest song is track one, you know, but it just set the mood and the tone for kind of the rest of their set. So when they would walk on, the audience would be very excited because they're about to play. And then, you know, I've seen, I know, I'm sure you have too, where like you go to see a band that does an album play and they don't play that first song. They like save it to the end or something like that. But they were just like starting with it right out the gate. Um, so just the energy and the excitement of the audience every single night, as soon as they immediately went into that was just like very palpable uh, and exciting to see. So I would have to just go with with that. Oh, super cool. Yeah. And just kind of setting it off right. That's really cool. Yeah, exactly. All right. Aloise wants to know which artist won you over or surprised you the most during an interview talking about doing the show? Yeah. So I thought about this question a lot. And the my first initial thing that came to mind was actually Adam Lazara from Taking Back Sunday. I admittedly never really listened to that band. I, I'm I'm very aware of them as anybody else would be. You know, they're a very, very big band. Um, I had a lot of friends who were really into them. Um, but for a band that has been around as long as Taking Back Sunday has, um, I was, I guess, taken back by how um, transparent and open Adam was about um, insecurities that he had felt as a vocalist and things like that um, in a way that it almost kind of felt like he never really talked about those things before. So his vulnerability really like kind of won me over in that interview. Yeah, very cool. I, I enjoyed that one too. And really just more recently, uh, Jem from Speed, not that yeah. I didn't already think Speed was cool, but it made Speed like my favorite band after hearing that interview. Um, and also wondering why they don't incorporate more classical flute into their songs. Right. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you that I really appreciated that part of the conversation, too, because, you know, there was a lot of vulnerability in Jem talking about, you know, uh, his struggles with feeling accepted in his in his pursuit of that and then like kind of questioning his routes with uh, with di his different musical endeavors. So, um, yeah, I'm with you. That was a really, you know sweet and uh honest part of that conversation that i'm i'm i definitely thought about for uh for a number of days after that conversation yeah because other than just of course it's interesting that anybody that you know played classical flute that it was this huge profound part of his life and just the lessons he learned through that process of his life that totally kind of built who he is as a person it just yeah it really made me a, a fan of him all right, so speaking of anniversary shows, like you were talking about with uh, Deaf Heaven, Daniel wants to know, why didn't you play Gather at the Stage 4 anniversary show? Yeah. Okay, so Gather is the B-side of that record, um, but it's kind of confusing because on Spotify, like Stage 4 is listed as like the expanded edition. So that song, to someone who is not... Um, you know, someone who like buys the record on vinyl or something like that, it seems like gathers the last song on the record. It is not. The last song on the record is Skyscraper. Um, and it almost kind of irks me a little bit when I when I think about the song and the way or think about the record in the way in, in which it's streamed, because it's like that song is not a good closer. Like Skyscraper is the closer. Um, but also I understand just wanting to have that expanded edition, you know, more streams, whatever. Um but yeah, we we had like the quickest conversation about it in the van. We're on tour and Elliot from the back uh, goes, hey, are we having to learn gather for this? 
And the van got quiet for like five seconds. And it was just like, yeah, we don't have to do that. So we avoided doing it. Um, we don't necessarily dislike the song, but we aren't. We weren't in such a favor of it that it obviously didn't make the record. So um, to us, it's just considered a B-side. And uh, it just happens to be tacked on at the end of the, you know, how the record is listed on streaming services. Kind of in the same vein, uh, Mason wants to know, are there any TA songs you'll never play live again, excluding album playthroughs? Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind, so we really don't play anything off of the demo unless it's songs that were also on our first record, those songs being Honest Sleep and Broken Records. Both of those ended up on Dead Horse. Um, But there's a song on the demo called Hipsterectomy, which is so bad. It's so, so bad. Um, And it also not written by me. I did not write the lyrics to the song. It was written by our original drummer who left the band after Dead Horse um, or after recording Dead Horse. Um, It's just the song is nothing that we relate to. It was we, you know, we were at the point in the band where we didn't think anyone outside of our friends would ever hear any of these songs. It's just sort of this like angsty anti-Silver Lake sort of anthem, which is funny because Nick was living in Silver Lake at the time. Um, So... Anyway, yeah, it's a song that we don't relate to. We don't think is very good. And uh, I didn't write the lyrics to it. It's the only song in Touche history that I didn't write the lyrics to. So that is a song that we will never play. Well, speaking of the demo, Miles wants to know. <laughs> first of all, he want, they want you to know that they love y'all and respect the path you take. But why don't you play the demo shit no more? <laughs> well... Uh, you know, I think any band who's been around as long as we have would probably agree that it's just like, it's so, you know, uh, primitive in terms of like the band that we became. Um, you know, I, I, I will always appreciate anybody who has any sort of an affinity or connection to any of that really much older material. Um, And I know that there's people that got into the band then that, you know, relate to that stuff the most, which I think is wonderful. Um, But also that was like a couple members ago. Um, We had like, like mentioned with the last question, we had, we had a different drummer at the time. We also had a different guitar player. Nick was playing bass at the time. So Tyler wasn't in the band yet. Elliot wasn't in the band yet. Um, So yeah, it's like, you know, for those guys, it's like for them, it'd be like, they have to literally learn how to play that stuff. And it's just like, you know, we've had, five records since then um yeah so that's that's kind of it the songs don't necessarily thrill us but there's some stuff on there that i still think is cool you know yeah yeah that makes sense especially with having just such a breadth of material now you want to put out your best at a yeah setting. i think at our 10 year anniversary show we played negotiating the charade which is the first song in the demo which is the first song that our band ever wrote um which was just like, hey, this would be kind of fun to do for the show. And then even playing it live, we're like, man, the song is weird. <laughs> so, I also find with uh, songs like that, with demo songs, things like that, that in theory, you know, because that's, of course, the joke, like, oh, you know, I only like the demo kind of thing. But right, when yeah, those yeah. songs get played live, the crowd, in fact, does not only like the demo and they're waiting for the songs that they know from the records you've been doing that they love. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was funny, too, when we played that, we're like, man, this is going to probably go off. And then we played it and it was like, it didn't really like it just before it's kind of like oh isn't that interesting that they're doing this 
Gabriel wants to know, what was your biggest challenge or adjustment you had to make when starting the podcast? Who, uh, I guess now, uh, I can, I'll let myself be a little vulnerable. Something that I still struggle with is, is, uh, is my voice, um, which even today is, is, you know, raspy and, and, uh, I struggle with hearing myself back, uh, back in the early days of this podcast, when I had to listen through every episode before I went up just to make sure everything was good and I was happy with it. Um, that was a big struggle because just hearing my voice back is something that I struggle with. Um, it's something that I'm forever been self-conscious of. Um, you know, a lot of people think that the reason I sound the way I do is because of screaming, which is like not really true. I've always kind of sounded this way. Um, it does obviously get worse if I'm on tour and, you know, I don't get a good night's sleep and things like that. It could be more busted up than usual. Um, but yeah, I think the biggest thing that I had to kind of get over was that part, which I still do struggle with. Um, but for me, it's like doing the show is me trying to overcome my self-consciousness of the way I sound when I talk. So yeah, that's, that's probably it. And is that why you started the show? I mean, with you being so self-conscious, this is me asking, <laughs> with yeah, you sure. being uh, so self-conscious of your voice, you know, that would be such a, a huge hurdle to overcome. So what was your reason that you even wanted to do the show? So, you know, not, uh, that's a great question. So there's a, a part of it is the, is that part. And then the other part was the show started over the pandemic. We had just finished recording Lament. Um, the future looked very bleak with the aspect of not touring and not really getting to socialize and see people and talk to people that I'm friends with. Um, and, you know, I'm not exactly the most unique person to be like, hey, I'm going to start a podcast over the pandemic. But um, a big thing for me was just like I missed having the conversations that I would have normally been having um, when I'm visiting South Carolina, you know, and like you and I get together and hang out. And then, you know, those sort of conversations are the kind of conversations that um, I was missing having. So it gave me an excuse to sort of um, reach out and talk to friends that I was missing or that I knew I would be missing. And then also, you know, see what I was actually capable of. Very cool. No, I, I, I can definitely appreciate that. And that's something that also that I've been meaning to ask you just because I did know that you were kind of self-conscious about your your speaking voice. And I mean, just nobody likes to hear themselves talk other than me. I'm obsessed with it. All I can do is listen to me. <laughs> most normal people, you know, it's a uh, it's a, it's a weird thing. Cause you don't sound to you how other people hear you anyway. So absolutely. Um, but I will say personally too, just seeing the growth of the show that your skill as just an interviewer or even a, a journalist, which might be a, a cringy word to say, I think is just exponentially grown that, uh, it's, it surpasses any possible, you know, uh, anxiety you could have about, uh, clearly you're past it because you make sure that you get the job done and you excel at it and you've you've taken it seriously where you it's not just a thing you were doing over the pandemic or a thing to fill the void. It's something that it seems like you not only take a lot of uh, joy in, but a lot of pride in to make sure you're delivering the best uh, experience for the listeners and for your guests. So I think that's, well, I, yeah. And I appreciate that. And I guess, you know, a third part to, to this answer, which is me. I I've said this before on the show. I'm very often a cart before the horse person where I get really excited about an idea. And then once something gets difficult, I back out of it or I end up just cutting it out of my life. Um, 
And this was also me, like the fact that I have to show up every week and do this every single week is like a way of like holding myself accountable to like getting it done. So it's like, I know that I can't get through my week without getting this thing done. So in a way it's like, it's kind of nice to have um, that built in sort of uh, routine that I know I have to get through, um, which is like, I think healthy for me to know that I have to like accomplish this thing every single week. You know, do you, did you ever feel that way with your show? Yeah, for sure. And I feel like, uh, I feel like it was a huge help for me just, uh, like the, I think it's called the science of systems. I think I've heard it called that before where you just have to have these systems in place to keep you on track and keep you accountable for showing up. And I think it's just good for, for mental health in general, whether it's, you know, getting up every morning and, and walking or making sure that you weekly have to do the show. Um, you know, my schedule, fortunately enough, got busy enough that it just didn't get to become a weekly thing for me, but certainly during the trauma of <laughs> the uh, the <laughs> pandemic or whatever it uh, was something that you know I was excited about every week and I'm sure you felt the same way I was like oh wow I get to talk to these people that I've always wanted to punish with enthusiasm about this work right and now, yeah now we can do it under the guise of uh of journalism and being a historian or something like that so no that's, it is, that's awesome. it's also fun. I mean I'm sure you've you've had this too where there's one thing where it's talking to someone that you're a fan of that you've maybe never met before and getting the opportunity to ask those questions. Like that's always very thrilling, but it's also, I think just as rewarding to interview somebody that I've known for 20 years and still find out something new about them. I think that that is also kind of fun to be like, I actually don't know what your first concert was, you know, stuff like that, which is, you know, rewarding in itself. No, I agree. And usually people that I'm friends with that have been in bands, like, for example, with you, I don't think I've ever just drilled you about a Touche album, which maybe I'd want to do because I think I'm looking at like six copies of Is Survived By over here. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just not things that come up because we're friends. We're not, you know, it's a, it's yeah, kind yeah, of a, yeah. a separate dynamic. So, uh, so yeah, just having that, um, like you said, having that, that format to be like, you know, these are questions that I never would have asked you otherwise, because we're friends. And it's just like, it would be a weird thing for me to just be like, Hey, uh, why is your name Jeremy? But, um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, here's a, here's a heavy one. Ben wants to know, do you think artists have a moral obligation to lift other artists up? You know, I thought about this question quite a bit too, and I'm going to say, no, I don't think that they do. I th- I don't think that, and that might sound kind of funny and kind of negative, but for most, not gonna, you know, I don't want to generalize, but like, I think for a lot of artists that their motivation is, is expressing themselves. That's their like number one, ob- you know, like to them, it's just like, I just want to express what I'm going through. I want to ex- express how I'm feeling. I want to write songs with my friends. And if people attach themselves to it and it grows, that's amazing. Um, I think that that is kind of, it for most people um i think that it's rewarding to help out other bands and take band younger bands on tour and like do all of those sort of things like check out other people's music and post and all that sort of stuff like i i have such record store guy brain that i just really enjoy the like sharing aspect of other people's art um and like trying to get people into things that maybe they never checked out before just because i think that it is that record store guy mentality that i have um but also at the same time like there are people that have done that for me and for touche um that i know is are things that absolutely changed the, the trajectory of our career and our lives 
Um, so if I could ever do that for somebody else, like that's something that I would find incredibly rewarding. Um, but as a moral obligation, I don't think so. I think it's just entirely up to the person. Yeah, I'm going to double down and I'm going to say that artists have a moral obligation to beef with each other because those are my favorite songs when they're just like about other bands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You yeah. were talking about Adam Lazara earlier. Remember that brand new Taken Back Sunday back and forth? Come on, those are bangers. We need yeah. more beef. And sold a lot of re- helps sell a lot of records. You Tear know? each other down. That's what we're here to tell you. Yeah. First I, yo, uh, you know, not to get all conspiracy theory here, but I have a strong, I, I, you'd have to really convince me otherwise that the Gallagher brothers haven't staged this entire thing just so they don't have to pay the other members of Oasis to play those songs live. <laughs> I was uh, theorizing that, uh, that that manager guy whose name I can't think of right now, P- Braun, Scooter Braun and Taylor oh, yeah. Swift, that they yeah. were in cahoots like, yo, here's, you'll be able to re-record and re-release all your albums. You're going to oh, make those up. royalties all over again. And it'll just make me look like, I, I don't care what people think about me. I'm making millions of dollars. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Make me the heel for a couple of years. Oh, now you're, now you're trying to flirt with me with the rest of the <laughs> Matt asks, how often do you reminisce over tours? Often. Um, I feel like, so my band, you know, we we have a wonderful relationship. We're all very, very close. Um, but we also don't hang out when we're not doing the band, right? Like, I'll see Clayton at a show semi-often. Um, but like, you know, we we see each other when we're on tour. We see each other when we're writing or or rehearsing, right? So... Usually it's like once we're in the van together, things always come up. And we, if you go to like um, we have our live archive on there of every show that we have ever played. Um, so that is always a great tool for like when we're talking about something or like being like how many, like even just on this last run on our way to one of the airports that we had, we we're on, you know, whatever. Um, there was the conversation of like, how many times do you guys think that we have played in the state of Texas and then everybody takes a guess and then I look it up and I'm like this many times like how many times do you guys think I've re- you know like the band has played in the state of Florida and everyone's like oh how about this or how many times do you think we've played this venue I think that's what started it because for Denver it feels like we've played the marquee like 700 times and then when you find out how many times it's actually been you're like wow that's actually less than I thought um so yeah that's always kind of a thing or being like who's the band that you think we've played the most amount of shows with? And then it's like, Oh, it's this band, you know? Um, and th- that answer is a lot of dispute. And I think second is sea Haven, which is very strange. Um, and Thursday, deaf heaven and uh, self-defense family, I think are also up there, but anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. Um, so yeah, to answer the question pretty often, pretty, pretty often. Well, that's crazy that Thursday, probably your favorite band is the band you've played with the most. Like, up yeah, there. Ju- one, yeah, one of them. They're they're in the top. They're in the top five. That's for sure. I am here to update you on the upcoming releases from Persistent Vision Records. You can pre-order the incredible split between Massanera and Quiet Fear. It's a collaborative split. Both of these bands are great. If you're a fan of Screamo sign right up you can pre-order these through persistent vision and through death wish inc 
also available is a self-titled 12-inch from the band Goetia, who are a new DC band featuring members of Genocide Pact and Brain Tourniquet. They're playing death metal with elements of grind, black metal, and punk. And lastly, a record from the band Wreath. The album is called The Land Is Not An Idol God. They are a dark, melodic crust band out of London, featuring members of the iconic bands Fall of Afrafa and Morrow. Head up Persistent Vision or Death Wish Inc. to order now. All right, Zach says, Jeremy, big fan. Hope you had a great year. If you had to fully swap the Coen Brothers tattoos for tattoos referencing a different director's work, who would the director be and why? Also, bonus. I don't remember authorizing a bonus, but we're going to let it go. <laughs> Favorite movie of 2023? Okay, so people who are listening who maybe don't realize my right leg is all Coen Brothers tattoos. I have like... 10 i think at this point i haven't hit every one of their movies i'm still missing quite a few um i just recently got a true grit tattoo on this last tour um so i was thinking a lot about this question and it's hard to decide because you have to think about the number of movies that a director has done and then also how many of those movies are actually tattoo worthy or great Right. So like with the Coen brothers, they only have a couple stinkers and even a stinker Coen brothers movie is better than most movies. So like I can deal with having a Hudsucker proxy tattoo because there's parts of that movie I like, even though overall it's not one of my favorites. Um, So David Fincher kind of comes to mind, but also I don't really want a fight club tattoo. That seems real tough. Um, And Scorsese, I'm a huge fan of, but has so many fucking movies, and there's like a handful that I don't really connect to or have much of a relationship with, so that's tough. Uh, P.T. Anderson is actually probably my answer, because he only has one movie that I'm indifferent about that I just need to give another go on, which is Inherent Vice, which I've been told is amazing, but I just, I saw it one time and it didn't do anything for me, but I need to give it another go. Do you have any directors that you would get to a, a full? Are, where do you land on movies? I don't know that you and I have ever talked about movies. Yeah, because you like like films, you know. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? Okay. So, but what I, do you like? I go, like triple X. I go to the movie theater at least once a week, but maybe more often than that. That's a lot. Um, I feel like I see every movie I can that comes out. Yeah. But I, but when I see them, I don't look at them and go like, Oh man, the cinematography and the way that that camera angle came out of the, Oh, was this a one shot? You know, whatever I go right. like, Hey, that's, I like that. That was good. I think that that's fine though. You don't have to like be a, be a psychopath about it. You could just enjoy it for what it is. Oh, I don't think you don't think it's fine. I'm just saying that I think what we go to the movies for are two different things. That's all I'm saying. I, what I really am saying is that I go to them for the wrong things and you're doing it the right way. I'm, I'm applauding you. What was but the last as far movie you saw? What was the last movie I saw? I think uh, Godzilla Minus One is the last movie. Okay, yeah. It was good, right? It was great. I loved yeah. it. Yeah. And I kind of saw it to be funny. I was like, oh, no, it'd be funny if I saw Godzilla Minus One. And then I was like, oh, you know what? Joke's on me. It rocks. Joke's on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have, I need is, to see. So do you not have, do, do you not have like, a, uh, like a director that you um get excited when they have work coming or is just movies just like a blanket like oh it's just entertainment 
no, I definitely have directors that I get excited about. I'm, I would say, uh, you know, Esmail just put out that uh, Leave the World Behind. He did um, Mr. Robot, which is my favorite TV show of all time. Right. And he also did a uh, TV show with my good friend uh, Rosario Dawson, who wished me happy birthday once. So <laughs> I like him. Um, also, Britt Marling, who did the OA. She recently did a, a TV show for Hulu called um, Murder at the End of the World that I really enjoyed. Right. Yeah. Nolan, up until he decided he was a history buff, uh, I was really into, was probably my favorite director. Are you but out Opp- on Oppenheimer? I'm not out on Oppenheimer by any means. I saw okay. it, and I, when I left Oppenheimer, I was like, wow, that was an incredible piece of art. I never need to see it again. Sure. I'm exhausted. I need a yeah. nap. Yeah. When I saw Dunkirk, I thought, I don't know who any of these guys were. They all look the same. They all got their little helmets. But when I saw The Prestige, I was like, oh, I think this is the greatest movie I've ever seen, maybe. Um, right. You know, Interstellar's incredible. Um, Memento. What else do we got? Uh, what's the... Um, the Batman films, of course. Of course. But I think that's yeah. like, that's like beyond even just like, you know, everybody likes The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight sure. Rises, I think. Yeah. Um, so uh, I feel like there's another big one that I'm leaving out. What is... Uh, it's Interstellar. Oh, the... Interception. Inception. Uh, Interception. Interception. Yeah. <laughs> Football movie. He did. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I love, I love, uh, I get excited about certain directors. Uh, Fincher. Fincher put out a movie this yeah. year too. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, no, I definitely, uh, I definitely do get excited, but I also am just excited to see any movie, man. I'm just like, I love going to the movies. Yeah. Um, I love bringing in a full meal and seeing if the people at the ticket counter are going to say anything about it. What's um, the most, insane thing you've tried to bring into a movie theater well i've never unsuccessfully brought anything into a movie theater these okay. children aren't getting paid enough to stop me from doing yeah, anything. that's true but but you know i'll bring in a box of donuts i'll bring in a whole pizza um i'll bring in some drinks i mean nothing a like whole pizza yeah because the movie theater and the pizza parlor are close enough that i would you know i i go through in my mind the scenario like well what if they do stop me i gotta have a yeah. game plan never happened I, yeah. i'm lucky if they even looked for proof of my ticket purchase but totally um but uh i'd be like well i walked here i mean i don't have anywhere to put it what do you want me to do but it's never come up they don't care i love that but uh but yeah so i don't have any i don't think i have any movie tattoos i also you know find tattoos an abomination and uh, slap against god (laughs) okay and my favorite movie of the year was the uh is the follow-up so i haven't decided and i have a few that I have yet to see. I'm seeing Ferrari tonight. Um, I don't think that's going to make my favorite movie of the year or anything, but um, let me see what I have. I I think, so I'll give a, in the running for the movies that I rated the highest on Letterboxd this year. How about that? How to Blow Up a Pipeline is very high up there. The Holdovers is high up there. Um, Oppenheimer, as mentioned. Um, uh, I loved Poor Things. I nothing I didn't give anything five stars this year, which is oh and zone of interest. Um and then as far and then this the tier below that, I just saw uh the Iron Claw, which I thought was great. Uh well I'll tell you that any any movie that's like a tight 90, you start off at four stars with me. All right. If it's 90 minutes or less, you're already going <laughs> right to the top. I love that. I love that. Oh, also the killer, uh the David Fincher movie. I loved that. Uh, a whole lot i've seen people be a little lukewarm on it but i i was lucky enough because i'm a coastal elite 
that they were playing it uh, at the local movie theater here for a week before it went on Netflix. So I caught it twice um, here at the local theater. And uh, I don't know if, if, if seeing it on the big screen made me like it more, um, but I loved it. I thought it was great. I love a, I love a millionaire wearing a or billionaire wearing a fucking sub pop shirt. It's so goddamn (laughs) funny. So and a fucking sociopath only only listening to the Smiths. There's so many little subtle things that are so goddamn good about it. Yeah, no, I agree. No, it's very good. Thanksgiving was probably my favorite movie of the year, <laughs> which was pretty entertaining. I I did not like. Spoiler alert: If you haven't seen fucking Thanksgiving, uh, skip ahead 15 seconds. I did not like that he pulled the punch on the trampoline bit. If you're familiar with the tr- fake trailer for Thanksgiving from the. Uh, from the grindhouse series oh sure so yeah like there was the fake trailer for thanksgiving and then now he's made it like what however 15 years later or whatever um in the fake trailer that trampoline scene is much more fucked up and graphic um he pulled his punch really hard in this movie and it wasn't the same thing that happens and it feels like he adhered to a studio note for it not going that far which is surprising for eli roth that's my that's my one beef with it you know what's going to be crazy to you about Thanksgiving for me? What's that? As I just saw Cabin Fever like a month before I saw Thanksgiving. Oh, yo, I stand by it is never too late to see something. I, I I back it. No, I'm saying like I was a me. I had just become an Eli Roth super fan and I'm like, oh, we got another one. Let's oh, go. That's amazing. I love that. All right. Uh, Justin wants to know, what are your favorite newer Screamo or Screamo adjacent bands, if any? Oh, man. So I put out a comp uh, in 2023 called Balladeers Redefined, which has 31 Screamo bands. Some of them have been around for a long time. There's like Jerome's Dream is on there and, um, you know, bands like or members of bands that have been around for a long time, like Terminal Bliss, there's members of Page 99. Um, But uh, so I would say my answer is almost all of those bands that are on that compilation, which is still available now on vinyl. So go order that from Deathwish, please. Uh, but off top of my head, I mean, I'm about to put out a record for the band Infant Island, which I think are incredible. Um, there's a band called Heavenly Blue from Michigan that are fucking incredible. Um, I got to do a EP for Slow Fire Pistol, which is a band out of Georgia that are great. Um, there's a band called Sonagi, which is amazing. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot. There's no shortage of amazing screamo bands right now i think it's like the best crop of this genre in so many years so um and i'm still finding out about bands i still have people sending me bands left and right being like yo have you checked this out have you checked this out it's it's almost all the time good so yeah stefan asks have you ever played ukraine sadly no we we there's like a handful of places that throughout the years uh we'd always tell our agent like hey like I know we're supposed to be coming over to Europe. Like we'd really love to knock this off and you know, like check this off the list and it just hasn't happened yet. And sadly, Ukraine was just always one of those places that we never had the opportunity, but we hope we can make happen one day. Thomas says, love all the covers you've done. Any chance of an album or EP like that? So this is a great question. And I got to say, so at some point, Touche is going to definitely put out like a b-sides collection record which in my dream scenario would be the songs from like all of the seven inches that are out of print um all of the like 
I don't know if it would include all the BBC stuff. We might do like a separate BBC release because at this point we've done a handful of recordings there. Um, but I would love to have a thing that has all the splits, all the covers, all of that all in one place on a collection. Like it'd be like a double LP sort of a situation. But we have to wait until a couple more seven inches are out of print. So that's kind of what we're waiting on, because it'd be kind of shitty to be like, all right, now now you can get it all all in this LP when, you know, poor Deathwish is still sitting on like 600 copies of a seven inch that hasn't sold out yet. Um, so that's just an eventual thing that's going to happen. So at some point, uh, all those covers that are either just digital only or out of print on vinyl will make it to an LP one day. Josh says, what was a more memorable show, 15 years at the Regent or 10 years at the Regent? It's tough to sort of say which one is more memorable just because uh, they both had special qualities to them. Um, Like the bands that we played with um, at the 10 year included a lot of spute. So like that and self-defense family where we like played those split songs live and it was like a whole thing. And like, so that was very memorable. and felt like a huge accomplishment. And then the 15 year that we did, we did, we played four of our records in full, including a lot of songs that we really hadn't played live in a long time, or, um, you know, we hadn't rehearsed and, and all of that. And to have songs that we sort of felt like maybe didn't connect with people in a live setting, all of a sudden work in a live setting because people were there for that specific record was a very rewarding experience. Um, so it's kind of hard to say, and I know that's not very helpful for a specific answer, but um, I, I, all I can say is like, both of them were very meaningful for very different reasons, you know? Very cool. Cool to exist for 10 and 15 years. That's crazy, right? Yeah, Does that insane. blow you away? It's, it's so weird to me. It's so weird. Rudy asks, any guests you hope to have on the podcast in 2024? And also, if you want to share, anyone you wanted to have on the pod but turned it down? So I don't want to, like, put anybody on blast, right? Let's not put anybody on blast. But it's not, it's not like, weird that someone's publicist says no, right? Or, like, or usually a publicist won't say no. They'll say try us again in a few months or whatever. Right. It's not uncommon. I'm sure you've dealt with this yourself. Um, I don't talk to publicists. Oh, that's right. We've talked about this. I love that. Um, you, it's, I always find it funny when I go to a publicist, when it's someone that I already have a relationship with, because I'm trying to be responsible and like have my, have the artist not get in trouble. Cause that happens sometimes where all of a sudden, you know, I schedule something with somebody and then their publicist is like then hitting me up asking if they'll be on the show. And I'm like, oh, I've already done this. And then it just kind of makes them feel like they're not important or something. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, I'll say, I mean, these are people that are at this point, you know, if it happens, it'd be fucking great. But like I obviously barked up like Phoebe Bridgers tree a number of times. And now she's obviously like the biggest one of the biggest artists in the world. So like chances of that happening probably pretty slim at this point um i tried Haley Haley williams a couple times their publicist is very kind and has said you know try us again in another few months it's probably been like a year since i've tried but maybe if it happens you know it'll happen and i'd be excited if it does um i don't really take anything too personally unless it's somebody that i have a bit of a relationship with that 
doesn't really give me much of an explanation. I'm always just kind of like, come on, man. Really? Really? Um, so I don't know. Uh, and as far as people that I hope to have on the show, I have my like checklist of like dream scenario, like gets, uh, that don't feel completely impossible, but, um, I hope happen one day. I've tried a few times for, um, Connor Oberst, which would be very exciting. Um, Matt Berninger from the national would be incredibly exciting. Um, I haven't tried Stuart Murdoch from Bell and Sebastian, but um, I feel like that could potentially happen. I just need to get the courage and send the email and or find the right person to sort of talk to for it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's, you know, and then also like I'm being such a movie fan. I've, I've had the absolute pleasure of getting to talk to so many directors that I'm a fan of, and I'd like to just continue doing that. Um, it gets a little intimidating sometimes when, I want to reach out to somebody who's been around for like 40 years where it's like, there's nothing I'm going to ask these people that they haven't been asked before. Like, even though this show I like to think has like its own angle, like, you know, how many times had, you know, I, this is just an example. I never would think that David Fincher would entertain the idea of coming on the show, but like how many times has David Fincher been asked, like, what was the first movie you saw in the theater? You know, it's like, he's answered that a hundred times. I'm sure there's books that document that, you know? So right. I don't know. Um, I just like to chip away at this one guest at a time. And if something special and exciting happens, um, I'm, I'm here for it, but I like to, you know, I like to sort of think every episode has its own special quality to it. So I often get, you know, and I'm not just like saying this to, you know, sound kind or something, but like, you know, I get just as excited talking to somebody who has, you know, 900 followers as somebody who's has 900,000 followers. It's, it's, it's all the person's story that intrigues me, you know? Yeah, I definitely get that. I uh, often tell people that about my show that, uh, you know, you're not listening to the record, you're listening to the story about it. And often the stories of the records you've never heard of are way more interesting than, well, uh, the label gave us some money and we went and recorded an album that kind of sounded like the one before and it did pretty good, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well said. Well said. All right. Uh, let's see. Nick asks, how did you and Chris Avis meet? And for listeners at home and, and me, who is Chris Avis? Okay, so Chris Avis is, uh, he, oh, man, how do we even start with this? So uh, I'll start by right out the gate. Chris Avis passed away um, a number of years ago in a very tragic uh, van uh, tour accident. And he's someone who uh, before, or not even, I don't want to say before because that sounds reductive, but um, if you are familiar with Hate Five Six, Chris Avis was sort of the West Coast version of that. Um, to the point where also after Chris Avis passed, um, all of his files and all of that stuff was actually sent to Sonny to preserve, uh, Sonny at Hate Five Six, um, to sort of preserve all of the footage that he had posted and recorded and all of that. Um, so Chris Avis is like just the West Coast documentarian of live shows and live audio and things like that. Um, he always just did it for, you know, sharing it for free. He loved to just like be a part of it in that sort of way. He loved to just document. Um, he lived in Bakersfield and would drive to LA like five times a week just to go to shows. Um, an incredibly supportive person um, had filmed like I would say the most popular live footage videos of Touche. Um, you'll notice are all uploaded by Chris. Um, yeah, just someone who was always a, a really close friend of ours. And uh 
so we met i met chris originally uh with my old band uh which is called thriller um and we were on tour with mm, okay how am i gonna get this right i'm pretty sure my band was on tour with makoto which is ray harkins who does 100 words or less podcast uh his band after taken was called makoto and there was a West Coast tour that was Touche, Makoto, and Horse the Band. So how's that for a uh, era? <laughs> exactly. Um, for the listeners at home, uh, Ryan just did the cut, 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 uh, hand sign at me um, for Horse the Band fans out there. So I was not getting along with my band at the time. So I was writing with Makoto. That's how kind of bad it was. It was right before I left that band. And... Um, they ray had already had a relationship with chris and chris let us stay at his house for the bakersfield show um so that's my first time i met chris which would have been probably 2006 or 2007 um and then just became a figure at shows that i would always say hi to and from there our relationship grew and uh yeah just you know always appreciated him and um miss him dearly so i think yeah i think that sums it up well, shout out to Chris Avis. Definitely uh, somebody that sounds like was a pioneer in the documentation of hardcore that we celebrate so often now. You know, it's yes. something that uh, is is so prevalent now. I mean, you can't, no show is unfilmed at this point, right? And so, uh, but back then that wasn't the case. And maybe a lot of people don't remember or realize that, but it was hard to get a video of your band live. Like you, you had to, you had to legit bring your own camera and be like, hey, could you hold this while we play? Yes, he, he had uh so many clever ways of sneaking stuff into shows we we have this really dumb joke that i hope uh lands right now but it probably won't and that's fine but i'm gonna tell it anyway um so he would he had this hat this baseball hat that he wired a microphone through that so a mic was literally like like out of the corner of his of his baseball hat Uh um it was a hat that uh it was a curse the band cursed it was a cursed hat that he had a mic like wired through right okay um and you know the sort of like dumb joke of uh uh you know like the simpsons when uh when uh when bart calls and does the prank the prank phone call to mo it's like the the made-up name that makes him say something else right uh so we always joked that uh we called chris uh uh mike zinazat which is mike zinazat <laughs> mike is in his hat so yeah it's like oh chris davis good old mike zinazat <laughs> Remember that uh, 1-800-COLLECT commercial, the Bob, we had a baby, eats a boy? Oh, my God. <laughs> I do remember. Yeah, exactly. Nick asks, how does Touche feel about barrier shows? Depends who you ask. I'll say that. I hate a barrier. A barrier is my worst enemy. Um, as soon as I walk into a venue that we are headlining at, if there is a barrier, I uh, I sick our tour manager on the stage manager and say, could you please try to get them to make that go away? Uh, I, ha- I will not name names, but there are members of the band that are a little more in favor of them just for the sake of uh, stage divers stepping on their uh, pedals. Um, so, you know, they see more of a pro than I do. Um, they're also down with that, you know, it's not to say that they don't um, enjoy when there isn't a barrier, but they're not as uh, 
as angry about them as I am as soon as I walk into a venue, you know? We just played a show in uh, in Dallas, and uh, it was a venue that I was told would not have a barrier, and then there was one, and they did the thing that I think is even worse than even just like having a barrier, is they did the thing where like it was a foot away from the stage and there was no one in between. So like, it just makes it more dangerous. You're like, if someone falls in there, it's like, there's no one there to catch them. You're just creating, like, you think that this is solving a problem, but it's actually making it worse. So anyway, yeah, not, not a fan. And if it was up to me, we would never have a barrier. Daniel from Berlin. We got international firsties on here. Daniel from Berlin says, Hi, Jeremy. You ever scored an exciting 12-inch or 7-inch while record shopping on tour and abroad only for it to break by some freak accident before bringing it home? So you kind of have it in the collection, but then also don't simultaneously? Thanks for doing this. Love the show. Love your year's end lists with Joey and Ray. And I can't wait to catch Touche in Europe again anytime soon. All the best from Berlin to L.A. So this is a great question. I really, really like this question. Um, I am extremely protective of getting my records home. So that might entail me going to a some sort of a post office overseas and just shoveling out the money to make sure that I just mail them home so I don't have to deal with it if I think my suitcase is going to be too packed. Um, or if I do end up putting them in my suitcase, it's like, you know, it's like I have them, I have it in a box. Uh, I then have clothes kind of like surrounding it in a way that is, you know, very, very protective. So I have lucked out to where I haven't had anything destroyed. But here's the story. At the end of our last European tour, uh, we did a lot of shows of this incredible band from Spain called Boneflower. Um, and uh, add them to the list of Screamo bands that I think are incredible. Boneflower is like top of the top of the tier. Um, they... Uh, we just before the night before we flew out out of Madrid, uh, I brought my records into the hotel because I was going to organize them and put them in my bag securely. I left them at the hotel. It was all the records I bought on tour. It was like a fucking stack of records. And I realized it when we were about an hour away and I panicked and called the hotel and the hotel was like, yeah, we don't have them. And I spiraled. I was like, because also the amount of money that I spent on those records, because it, it was a lot. Um, I went, I got really stupid and overly ambitious in a lot of cities. Um, and so Boneflower went on my behalf and basically like called over and over, um, spoke to them in their native tongue. And it was extremely helpful and uh, after days and days of like being told we don't have them, we don't have them, all of a sudden, someone found them. And Boneflower went out of their way to drive to that hotel, pick them up, and then mail them to me, which I am forever in debt to Boneflower for doing that. It was just the nicest thing in the entire world. Um, I was so sad. I, I can't tell you how sad I was at the thought of like losing all of that stuff because it was like so many incredible things that I found on that tour that I was like, just, yeah, I, uh, I'm not one to punch a wall, but I, 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 uh, I, I held myself back from punching walls in that situation. Cause I was like, I can't believe I fucking did that. Ah! So anyway, shout out Boneflower for doing that. But also I'll, I'll add the idea of having a record 
in your collection that is damaged that you can't get away, you can't throw out. I do have a situation with that, which is I have uh, an original press of Recovering the Satellites, which is the second Counting Crows record. But both, it's a double LP, both records are record C and D. So I don't have record A and B. So the record is actually worthless. Like, I could listen to side C and D, but the, I don't have side A and B. So the record is like, like yeah, it's like, I, I don't feel like I could throw it away, but it does nothing for me. I'm just like frustrated every time I look at it. Well, since we know that the records were recovered, I gotta say, rookie move, leaving them at the hotel. I oh mean, my embarrassing. God. It's, I can't tell you. Because I lean them up against the mattress, which like the way the 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 sheet over like it just overhung over them in the morning when I meant to yes I it was one of those things where two when we were like 30 minutes down the road my brain said you got the records right your suitcase your, your suitcase felt a little light when we stopped at a gas station I immediately ran to the back opened up my suitcase re dug my hands in and just screamed no so yeah shitty I remember my first tour too, Jeremy. All right. Uh, so <laughs> kind of a uh, piggybacking off of that. What's the craziest thing you found at Amoeba Records? That is kind of hard to answer because I've had a lot of wonderful scores over the years, but I'll, I'll bring up that in the early days of Amoeba at the original location uh, in like 2002 and to 2004, every summer they would pull out all of the seven inches that they had in the warehouse like just pull out tons of stuff that you could tell that they never got around to pricing that they never it was pre-discogs so they didn't know the worth of these things and they would do a thing where they would it would be all seven inches or half off so they would just throw a price on there and put out rows and rows i'm talking like if you went through the whole thing you probably flipped through four thousand seven inches and my buddy Brian and I, who I played in Thriller with, who was my roommate, worked at a record store with him. Like we were like tied to the hip best friends. Um, he and I would go almost every single day and go through every one of those seven inches. And we found some absolutely insane shit for 50 cents, a dollar fifty. Talking Sasha seven inches, AFI seven inches, uh like a snapcase record limited to seven uh dead guy seven inches like i would say 60 percent of my most valuable seven inches came from those couple years of when amoeba was doing that pre-discogs Sasha seven inches just chilling in the bin for literally like two bucks looking for an extraordinary coffee look no further than Heartwork coffee with eight years of excellence and proudly roasting in the vibrant city of San Diego, California, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to explore a wide range of single origin and blended coffees to suit your taste preference. On a personal note, co-founder Rob Moran has played in so many bands that have inspired me personally, like Unbroken and Some Girls, for example, and it's been amazing watching Heartwork thrive all these years. The coffee is amazing and I'm thrilled to support this company. Once again, Visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to place an order. That is H-E-A-R-T workcoffeebar.com.
Caleb asks, with how strongly people have connected with your lyrics over the years, do you feel like you've had to build boundaries or has that response encouraged you to be even more open and exploring very personal subjects and emotions? I always sort of told myself that I would be as open and whatever is possible when it came to writing. And I still like to think I'm that way. Um, But I can say that, you know, post stage four, knowing full well, like the, the, the intensity that can come from someone connecting with lyrics. And that's something that I have a lot of pride in that people have ever connected with it with anything that the band has done. Um, It does make me a little more conscious of the direction in which I'm writing. Um, It does inform decisions. uh, But I don't, I like to think that I still won't pull punches if it's something that i'm feeling strong about um but if i'm ever setting up a boundary when it came when it comes to expressing anything that the band is doing um it's more in terms of self-preservation i think um which i used to be less conscious of so um i like to think that i'm not really doing it like we're writing a record right now um I'm still in the early stages of kind of finding my footing with where I'm writing. Um, but I haven't found myself thinking like, you know, I have to take the listener into consideration or, or like how the listener might respond to this and how that will then respond um, to how they, you know, talk to me about this stuff. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I like to think that I'm a little more aware for self-preservation's sake, but I don't think that it's informed any decisions. Yeah, so you might be conscious of it, but it's not uh it's not hindering your your process. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um I think it's just something that I've accepted and also take again, like take pride in that anyone actually pays attention to anything I'm saying. So, you know, it's important to me. Well, we'll uh we'll kind of roll through with something related to that as well. So Maggie says, uh, although Is Survived By is probably my most favorite album and Come Heroin might be the most meaningful song to me in pulling myself out of my grief from losing my father to cancer a few years ago, there's, a, there's no better album I've found other than Stage 4 to encapsulate the experience of grieving a lost loved one. My question for you is, I tend to find myself gravitating towards certain songs during different stages of my grief as it never really goes away but rather reshapes. When he first died, I couldn't listen to Displacement enough. Three years later and more currently, New Halloween and Skyscraper have found a more meaningful home in my heart. I'm wondering which song off of Stage 4 resonates with you the most now that more time has passed by from its initial release. Thank you for the music you continue to put out into the world. Lyrically speaking, nothing compares to you and I couldn't be more grateful that you exist so that I can have TA in my life. Your music is a huge part of who I have become after losing my father, the emotions I have to process, and the sound that fills my soul. I'm looking forward to more and more. Please never stop. I really, really appreciate you sharing all of that. And obviously my, my very sincere condolences for your loss. Um, and I'm very, very flattered that uh, anything that this band has done has helped in any sort of way. Um, that's always very rewarding to hear. Uh, as far as songs from stage four that have a deeper meaning to me now, it's, you know, it's funny. It's like, it's, it's, I would probably choose a song that is one that we don't play live um, just because the songs that we often play live, which would be flowers and you new Halloween rapture 
Palm Dreams. Those are the songs that get and Displacement. Um, those songs kind of have had the most uh, stage time, I'll say. Uh, the songs that have less, um, that might be a little more, um, I haven't had to think about them as much because I haven't had to like go over the words and, and sing them over and over and over and over. So a song like softer spoken to me, I think kind of encapsulates everything I was trying to say in that record into one song. And it's not, and it's a song that we've probably played live less than five times. Um, one of them, including when we did the full album. Um, so yeah, I would think, softer spoken is probably up there there's also a song towards the end called water damage which is like tells some very sort of for me personally harrowing uh stories of of when my mom was on her way out um but but so like that one became kind of hard to sing when we were playing it live early on um but softer spoken i think is still my answer as a song that um, I feel fully kind of explains where I was. I also want to say it might've been one of the last songs that I wrote for that record. So that in a way it's kind of like, it was me sort of tying up um, my last feelings about the situation um, in terms of for the album. So yeah, I think that's my answer. Brandon asks, what are some of the most memorable shows you've played? Okay. So, uh, I was trying to dig deep because I, you know, there's obvious ones that are like, oh, the anniversary shows or like um, Sound and Fury 2009, which was like our first festival show where like people reacted to us in a way that was like, wow, people are paying attention. Um, so some other ones that come to mind are we got to play more more recently. Um, we got to play uh, uh, Outbreak in the UK in 2022. And that was the most overwhelming experience like just some backstory on that um we were announced on that festival like you know when the whole thing got announced originally um and we were not supposed to be a headliner we were just playing sunday um and then every time i die was they were the headliners that day and then they obviously imploded and they then came to us and were like hey how do you guys feel about closing which we were like uh i suppose that's okay you know they they were nice and they they upped our our uh our, our guarantee a little bit for for taking that on um and then they also added death heaven so we were like okay friend that's great um so they're like you guys in death heaven are going to be the last two bands of the night and like you know you've you've been to a million festivals being playing the being the last band on sunday on the third day of a festival it's kind of tough you know like there's a term deadliner you know, where it's like a lot of people are exhausted and, you know, leaving early, you know, they've had a long weekend. Um, we weren't supposed to be the headliner. So like, there's a little bit maybe diminishing return for the people that were excited about every time I die. Now it's just like, oh, this band that's already been announced or they're just now going to close. So, you know, I kind of went into that being like, look, if we play to half these people, that'll be a win. You know, like, I'll, I'll, I'm just happy to be here. It's cool. We're getting paid to do this. We're around so many friends we haven't seen because of the pandemic. And when we took the stage, that room was still, I would say, 85% filled. And to play songs off of Lament that we hadn't had the chance to play live yet to that audience. I mean, like, there's video of it online where, you know, like the whole set is on YouTube. 
um, it, you could just see in our faces that we are just like floored by this happening. We're just like, I cannot believe <laughs> that this, this is the set that we're getting considering all of the things that were kind of like, you know, going against us in a way. Um, so yeah, that, that really comes to mind. Um, one of Touche's first tours in Europe, uh, we played Fluff Fest, which is in the Czech Republic, which is like a completely DIY punk festival. Um, we were on tour with a lot of spute and uh, our set at that was very overwhelming. Like it was in this gorgeous field where like the sun was setting when we were playing and like just having, you know, a couple thousand kids in the Czech Republic go off to our band was like, what is this is we're so far from home. Like, I can't believe this is happening. Um, so those those two are kind of cool bookends when it comes to like shows overseas, you know. And you're playing Outbreak again this year, right? We are, yeah. We just got announced on uh for doing it next year, and I think that's just the situation where we're flying in and flying out. So I think it's just sadly we're only getting to do one show, but uh, very excited to go back, and it's going to be at the same festival grounds that was the year that when we played it. So it's just going to be exciting to get to walk on that stage and you know do it again um and hopefully we'll have a new record recorded by that time so um well it'll be nice to like you know know that we're on to the next chapter of the band at that point yeah brad wood asks who is your favorite producer and why is it brad wood (laughs) i had to include this just because it's just it's too funny uh brad wood is the gentleman who recorded is survived by as well as stage four uh, we just got to see him uh, last week. Um, he is one of a very small amount of people that are doing the Dolby Atmos mixes of bands for bands. Like he just did like the killers. He's done a ton of huge stuff. Like it's so cool that he's the guy, uh, one of the guys that are like in charge of like making this happen and get to. So he, he just mixed is survived by for this reissue that comes out in January to, so to sit in that studio that we had recorded these records with um, and to have his new setup where there's speakers like all around the room and to hear this mix that he did for is survived by in that capacity was like just such a cool thing. So uh, we love Brad. He's he's got the best stories uh, in the entire world. Um, and uh, so getting to spend time with him again after so many years uh, was really fucking awesome because, yeah, the last record we did with him was 2016 and granted we've seen him since then but like you know to be back in that room and to to have this new chapter in his life and then also experience this work that he did with remixing the record it was like just so cool so yeah bradwood fucking he rocks eddie asks did you find music in life or did music find you i love this it was just it's it's such a sweet question <laughs> like it's like all right uh i think music found i think it was uh it might have been equal because i think no one in my family was ever musicians um no like no one you know my my mom never played anything my dad um i told my dad i found out later in life that my dad at one point played guitar i recently gave him uh an acoustic uh i had i had one here and uh and i just wanted him to like he's such a workaholic i gave him a, a, a guitar in the hopes that he would like pick it back up and like maybe have something to turn his work brain off to. Um, I don't think he's opened it since like opened the case since I gave it to him. Um, he tried to give it back to me a couple weeks ago. He's like, you know, it's just sitting here. I don't want to. I'm like, dad, this is the reason I gave it to you. Like you need to please play this. 
Um, so, but what I'm getting at is like, you know, music was never like a direct thing in my family. Um, my older brother plays drums and, uh, he didn't start playing drums until, you know, he was like, I think in junior high or something, but, um, so the access to music was basically like something that we found on our own. And I just, I, I, I was obsessed with it at such an early age. And, uh, I, you know, it was just like the thing that I kind of felt like was, um what set me apart from my brother because my brother was such a video game person um and he still is like a massive video game person but you know he's he loves music too but uh i i think that my attachment to it young when i was very young it was like me also trying to like have my own identity as as the younger brother is like i'm the music guy you're the video game guy you know so yeah, I found it very early on and I was obsessed with music at like age five, I think, as, as early as I can remember. Eric wants to know your full ranking of Coen Brothers movies. <laughs> um, all right, before I give my rankings, I want to point out that I'm not going to do uh, Tragedy Macbeth because that is a Joel Cohen only movie, so that does not count. Um, and then uh, I'm not going to include movies that uh, they just wrote that they did not direct. And, um, I will say that like after five, like between five and like 13, all that mid tier stuff is kind of interchangeable, but this is the list that I made. So here we go. Number one, big Lebowski. Number two, no country for old men. Number three, Barton Fink. Number four, Miller's crossing. Number five, Fargo. Number six, inside Lewin Davis. Number seven, uh, Oh brother, where art thou? Number eight, hail Caesar. Number nine, Raising Arizona, number 10, True Grit, number 11, Blood Simple, number 12, The Man Who Wasn't There, number 13, A Serious Man, number 14, Burn After Reading, number 15, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, number 16, The Lady Killers, 17, Hudsucker Proxy, 18, Intolerable Cruelty. So there you go. And number one, starting my co-worker, John Goodman from Righteous Gemstones. There you go. Yeah, yeah. For, the, be... for people listening, if you if you watch the Righteous Gemstones, my boy Ryan here was one of the uh, the the buff boys from season two. <laughs> the buff boys. That's what I'm calling you. That's what I'm calling you. You're one of the you're the 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 buff the, the, the buff the man. God Squad. The, the God, God squad. squad. Yeah, yeah. That's season two, right? It is season two. Season yeah. two. Yeah, yeah. I love that. All right. <laughs> uh, John will be happy to hear that he's number one on your list. Uh, Omar asks, will there ever be another Hesitation Wounds album? I hope so. You know, th- the band is not the most active, and now we're even more spread apart because Niraj was the only other person who lived in L.A. He now lives back in Chicago. So it's like, I'm in L.A. Tommy is in Portland. Uh, Tommy's also now playing in Angel Dust and Gouge Away. Uh, Niraj is in Chicago, and then Scuba is in Arizona. So um you know if it happens it'll just be a time and place situation to where we could all kind of like you know carve out a week to try to do something but um you know if it happens it happens i love making music with those guys but uh it's it's i don't think it's a priority for for any of us liam asks do you ever seek out laser discs or seven inches over 12 inch vinyl in your collection i like seven inches more i don't know why (laughs) um so uh i think when he says laser i don't want to be wrong but i think when he says laser disc he might mean picture discs right like that's that's my guess 
I would assume so. I would assume but no, so. Yeah. You know what happens when laser discs are, are movies, but uh, I also like Seven Inches. Um, they have gone down in interest, I think, for a lot of people. Um, they're harder to sell uh, from a label standpoint, I will say. Um, but yeah, I uh, I, I also want to. If you were talking about picture discs throw them all in a fire that's the worst fucking format of record in the entire goddamn world they sound like shit they look like shit uh the plastic that they come in always tears uh you don't get any sort of liner notes unless you're like the few bands that are smart enough to like actually do uh, a full jacket for it like hot cross did it for risk revival coalesce did it for uh there's nothing new under the sun um but usually it just comes in that shitty plastic and you're you don't get any liner notes and you just get a record that sounds like shit. So, um, yeah, fuck a picture disc. And uh, I like seven inches, too. I own one picture disc and it does have full artwork and vi- uh, liner oh, notes. What is and it? it is Miley Cyrus's Bangers album from 2018. OK, OK. And I think that might be my most valuable discogs piece as well. That's amazing. So. Good for you. Not to brag or anything. Not trying to show you up here. (laughs) Ryan, not me, different Ryan, wants to know, what are some favorite non-hardcore artists and why do you like them musically? Oh, I, you know, I love hardcore as much as the next guy, but I listen to hardcore so much less than I listen to other genres. Uh, I, you know, a lot of my favorite bands, I think people who are familiar with anything I talk about probably realize like, the national leonard cohen uh fucking uh bell and sebastian who i've talked about earlier uh you know the replacements i i have you know i it'd probably be harder for me to list hardcore bands that i love than non-hardcore bands that i love yeah i feel like you almost exclusively talk about non-hardcore bands. (laughs) yeah i know that you like rotting out that's it oh yeah the i mean yeah the rotting out's cool yeah. Well, you used to wear that shirt all the time, I feel like. The, sh- the Street Prowl shirt. I feel like you were like a big... No? Am I making this up? I probably had that. Also, have you not seen a photo of me since like 2009? <laughs> no. <laughs> all my photos of you in my house <laughs> that I have... <laughs> are you in the Street Prowl shirt with a flannel <laughs> over it? <laughs> oh, so good. All right. Isaac wants to know, was there one specific artist or band that made you want to be involved in music or sing? Yeah, I, you know, there's a million answers I could probably give for this that I've probably said before, but I'll just repeat myself uh, in in this, but definitely Pearl Jam and Nirvana. Like those are the two bands that were like guitar rock bands that I signaled as like, oh, you look like, you know, average people, Uh, you know, like you're, you're, you're you're wearing normal looking clothes and you're able to do this. And, uh, the footage of, uh, from the even flow video of, uh, of, uh, of Eddie Vedder stage diving is something that I always point to as like, you know, being, being the, the younger brother, like, Oh my God, look at all the attention that guy's getting for doing this. Like that looks fucking cool. Um, so yeah, I, I, I always point to, to Pearl Jam and Nirvana as the two bands that, um, really made me want to, make music Robbie asks how do you decide the colors and distributors for variants on your released records love this question um so inside baseball stuff uh usually I mean this comes for touche this comes for secret voice but uh usually 
the colors we like to sort of like match what the album artwork is so if like you you know you put you pull out some covers that are some colors that are um on the cover and you sort of like find a cool way so that the vinyl variant is complementary to the artwork um and now with like you know there's so many different wild variants that you can do um i like to kind of put that in the lap of the band um and say like yo, let's like use these colors. And now here's a link to, you know, Pirates Press or whatever to where like you like what, which of these do you think would look cool? And then we can go from there and sort of, you know, collaborate on what's going to look the coolest. Oh, that's really cool. And do they ever suggest a, like, you know how Revelation does always the yellow or whatever. Is, yeah, is yeah, Deathwish yeah. ever like, yo, should we, we should do blood splatter or whatever. Um, so that's, that's interesting. So yeah, when it comes to, uh, Cause yeah, they asked about that too. Right. So, um, some places like to have a specific, I think for a while there, death Wish was doing just like red. Um, but usually we kind of pick the places variant, you know, it's like, Oh, you know, uh, I don't think we've ever done Newberry comics. Um, I have a weird, I don't need to get into it, but I, I kind of, I shy away from them just because I'll just say it. I'm not afraid. What are they going to do? be mad at me i don't care uh i don't like that they upcharge so much for a variant when everywhere else is like the same price like i don't like that they add like seven dollars on top of what their variant is i'm just like what are you doing um but uh as far as like other places you know i think we just like we choose a bunch of different colors and say like let's just you know this is how we'll distribute them very cool Look, you do one show with me and you're already calling out Newberry Comics. I'm a a good influence. Nicholas Flores asks, realistically, how much money do you think you've invested in vinyl? (laughs) Oh, my God. I don't want to like that. I saw that question. I was like, oh, shit. Uh, I'll say, look, I've been collecting since 2000. So I got 23 years of collecting under my belt. So a lot. I pro- could could I have potentially been an, a homeowner in the state of California? Probably. Um, but I like to, you know, I look at this stuff like an investment. You know, I can, you know, if if I if worse comes to worse and I need to hawk all of this, then maybe I can become a home a homeowner. You know, um, but I don't. I try not to think about how much I've spent on this stuff. Um, I don't have any other hobbies though, really, other than going to movies. So it's been what I've poured everything into yeah and you also are nailed to the x right so think of all the money people spend on uh it's true craft beers and stuff like that the ninja turtle beer at their local brewery at the frothy beard yeah let me tell you though ryan the worst thing that ever happened to me was uh i was never i i was always i'm still pretty kind of a picky eater um but i never would have thought about uh eating sushi in my life and then uh and then i got introduced to sushi like seven or eight years ago and that shit is so expensive and it's like my favorite food in the world now so that shit sucks oh well the quick you know how you can solve that is uh go vegan so dallas chattel <laughs> asks will we see more of the southwestern influences on future material the pedal steel stuff and visuals are a really fun pairing in a genre that doesn't typically incorporate those elements uh i can't say yes or no we have been writing a record and the pedal steel is set up in the practice space but nick has yet to sit behind it so it might be a thing that comes once we're recording we find some space for it um but as for right now we haven't incorporated it just yet but you know never say never 
Erica says, Hi, Jeremy. Longtime fan of the show. If I recall correctly, in 2014, Joyce Manor was a last-minute add-on to Title Fight's headliner at their Ukrainian center with support from Hopalong. This got me thinking, have you ever witnessed a legendary last-minute add-on or been part of one? How easy or difficult is it to pull something off like this? I rarely see it done now. Thanks. Um, so the first part of the question, the first thing that came to mind, which is a show that was <clears throat> incredibly influential to me, which was I went to go see the band Far in 1998, who was my absolute favorite band in the entire world, a band I still very much enjoy. Um, and Snapcase came out on stage and played um the singer of far went up to the mic and said we're gonna let our friends play a couple songs they're called Snapcase," and i'd never heard of Snapcase. i had a vague idea of what hardcore was but i did not know it was that and uh so i was front and center i was like 13 years old as uh they had just released progression which is one of the fucking best records of that genre and i fucking you know all of the all of the hairs on my little body stood up and was just like this is the craziest shit in the entire world and i was scared i was nervous i was um enthralled uh so that was my first exposure to witnessing a hardcore band live and it stuck with me um fast forward till 2020 um before the show shut down before pandemic happened um hesitation wounds got to open up the california uh takeover anniversary shows so we got to play with snapcase and earth crisis and strife which are like bands that were extremely important um to my you know uh becoming a hardcore kid and i got to tell the guys in snapcase uh, backstage about how that was the first time i got to see a band and like we reminisced about that and it was really cool to like talk to them about that experience and and hear their side of it and like how they were approached to do it and you know just like what they went through to make sure that happened um so that's what comes to mind for me uh before i move on to the next part do you have any that come to mind like is there anything that you wouldn't what do you got so uh cornerstone fest which is like a christian hardcore yeah. festival which you're probably more than well aware of that i don't know why I'm <laughs> for listeners uh, explaining yeah um south carolina hardcore heroes stretch armstrong who uh at the time identified as a christian hardcore band i don't know if they straight away from that but most hardcore bands do yeah, they later on they denounce christ uh they were on board and they were scheduled to play cornerstone fest and were on tour with a band called brothers keeper from erie pennsylvania yep uh mike ski a brothers keeper a real uh idol of mine or hero or whatever you want a role model for me i i admired him very much growing up and uh and as an adult and um so they were on tour and brothers keeper not a Christian band of it. Not that they're like a satanic band, but you right, know, yeah. <laughs> a Christian just not band. a Christian band. Yeah. And stretch Armstrong negotiated with cornerstone and, uh, they played half of their set and then brought brothers keeper out and brothers keeper did the second half of stretch Armstrong's time so that they could not have nothing to do that day. And that to me, legendary on, I mean, just a uh, whole spectrum, but also yeah. back then, you know, that's kind of what, hardcore was presented as this like genuine community kind of thing. And you rarely saw real examples of that where people like kind of going back to this moral obligation to lift up each other art, the artists, not more, there was no obligation. That's why it was so sick. They, they didn't have to do that. Right. But they were like, no, these are our boys. We're on tour with them. I know they don't fit the criteria, but we'd really like it if you let them play. And if you can't give them a slot, we'll give them half of ours. So I always thought that was uh that really is very cool. cool. Um, And then in terms of, it happening more these days. 
it's just hard, you know, like one thing you got to get everybody in a band, every, everybody from the band in the same room, you know, like uh, I thinking about my band in general, like I was thinking about this when this question came in um, the other day, where I was like, I can't think of a time when every member of my band was ever at a show. I don't think it's ever happened that a show we're not playing other than a show that we all realized we were at before Touche was a band, which was we all went to go see Tragedy at this venue, the Cobalt Cafe. We all happened to be in attendance, but we ha- we hadn't met each other yet. So it's just happened to be funny that we were all there. But like, I don't think that there's ever been a circumstance where all five of us were at a show to where that could even happen. Um, so I just think that about that with other bands too. You know, like when we play Philly, you know, Maybe some members of Title Fight come out, some members of Tiger Shaw come out, some members of Me With How You come out. Um, I'm just thinking of like, you know, you don't often get an entire band there. If we did, that might be kind of fun to be like, hey, do you guys want to come up and play a couple songs? Like that might be a cool thing to do. But I think it's just you'd have to like organize that so far in advance that it's like rare to just be able to do something like that. It's kind of spur of the moment. Um, And... Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's kind of the hardest part is just kind of like getting everybody in a room at the same time. Rohan asks, what song first gave you goosebumps or routinely gives you goosebumps? Ooh, uh, a song that immediately came to mind for this was there's a there was a band. They're long broken up now. Uh, they're called Color Revolt. Uh, they have a song on their first EP called Mattresses Underwater, uh, which Every time I hear that song, it's one of my favorite songs uh, that gives me that feeling. Um, there's also a rival school song called Undercovers On, which is one another one of the songs that does that for me. Um, I can't think of the first one that ever did it. Maybe like Milk It from Nirvana, which I talk about a lot because there's a little moment where Kurt Cobain does like a giggle before the last chorus. And it's so eerie. Uh that it it i don't know it gets me every time but uh those are some quick examples do you have any songs head pe have a song that uh does that for you do they have one song that does that for me they got <laughs> three records that does it for me <laughs> you know you know what's always uh funny to me and i always kind of point this out is that even though it's absolutely like the poser introduction song to this band. They okay. are my favorite band have always been. And when they play this song live, I get charged up from it, fired up from it, just like I did the first time. And that yeah. is down by three eleven. That song just gets me unbelievably hype. I just can't even believe it. First of all, it's a song about how great they are sick. Okay. <laughs> I don't then think it's I ever that. realized that's what the song is about. Well, that's what their whole first five records are about. Is that true? Yeah. All the songs are about, we're 311, we are so sick. And um, Wow. Maybe I like 311 I, now. Oh, they're the best. Uh, it's when they start writing about other things that it really takes a turn. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, maybe we should be socially conscious. No, no, no. Stick no, to no, what no, you no, know. No. And yeah. that is that you are the best. But yeah, uh, and then it's just got that insanely heavy breakdown that's just, you know, because they're standard tuning, but it's... Right. Da, 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 oh, man. Yeah. Yes. But in a live setting, it's funny because most of my favorite bands I really can't listen to, hmm. but I can go see them live. Um, Head P is the opposite. I can't go see them live. I can't listen to them. <laughs> 
unwatchable. <laughs> All right, we got two questions left. Let's DJ go. asks, first off, want to say I really appreciate everything you do as an artist. You've put me onto tons of great music, and I'm very thankful for that. In regards to your antimatter interview, I thought it was interesting that you said there are only really two parts in your songs that you could push out to. Do you think it's odd that people somehow find a way to mosh to all of your songs? Because in my experience at your shows, it feels like the pit is always moving. Also, sorry to be annoying, but please come through Sacramento. Thank you. Oh, you know, when he said push out, I was like, DJ's definitely from Europe, but Sacramento. I know. And I, it, when I remember when I read this, I was like, push out. Does he, like, I, I was trying to think if that was a typo, um, but push out could maybe mean mosh. So, uh... I didn't reread or I just, I did that interview with Norman from antimatter and I historically don't read or listen back to a lot of interviews that I do just out of my own self-consciousness. Um, but maybe it was taken out of, I don't think it would take me to my point was touche has I, what I said was like, we have two parts that are mosh parts like that are like kind of breakdowny and it's face ghost and it's come heroin. Cause there's like, Da, 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 like type element to it right i think we're a push we're a push we could be a push pit band like for sure you know it's aggressive like I, people push pit to us kind of the whole time which i think is cool um i do raise an eyebrow when i see someone like swinging like mo like mosh mosh like hardcore dancing quote unquote to our band during like fast parts i'm just like i don't know what you're doing like that does not translate to what we are doing on stage at all. Um, so that's what I was kind of more referencing. Yeah. I definitely think some of those earlier songs are a little bit more, uh, I don't know, like fight riffy, like history reshits itself. I can see you just swinging on somebody too. Might not be rhythmically to a groovy breakdown, but I can. Yeah. Or like always running has that. It's like, a yeah, that one could kind of work. Uh, yeah. Earlier material, maybe a little bit more. I'm just, yeah. Because later on, it seems like the guitars even got, you know, a lot of that gain taken out of it. So whether it's like a, a riff or not, it just doesn't have that same, deliberately, I'm sure, yeah. the same aggression to it. So We're jangly earlier... as hell. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird to swing on somebody during the jangliest sounding shit in the entire world. I get it. It's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Well, hey, man, this has been a lot of fun. But let me hit you with the last question, which is. Uh... Well done. When was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you set out to do as an interviewer? Um, I loved what you did there. As my editor, <laughs> you have to hear me say those exact words so many times. And I'm conscious of it when I say like, shit, man, let me hit you with the last question. I know I fucking say that every single time. Uh, I have so many things like that that I'm like, my poor editor. Um, the best part about that is the shit, man. Shit well, man. hey, wait, yeah, shit, man. <laughs> Well, well, shit, bro. Well, I mean, shit, well, let, me go, let me hit you with that last question. <laughs> I'm going to try to change it up just for you. No, no, you. no. I, it's like a catchphrase now. You got to keep that, incorporate firsties, firsties, and then we're going to... Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm making notes. I'm making notes here. Okay. Um. So, I think... So, if I really thought about it, like you know i mentioned earlier about you know my sort of being self-conscious about doing this sort of a thing um so i think there was a moment when i kind of was able to see past um my own sort of nervousness and find myself having really good back and forth with specific guests um 
like pe- like mostly people that I didn't already have a prior relationship with because like those I could find myself being a little more comfortable and just realizing that maybe the person listening is just more of a fly on the wall for this conversation. Um, but when I had to actually, you know, do a lot of research and, you know, ask questions that I that I was hoping were very thoughtful um, and get over my own insecurities and have those conversations um that for me and that was like within the first probably like maybe that was around like the 30th or 40th episode or something like that is when I started to sort of find myself um being less nervous going into it but more um excited about the situation um that's kind of when I felt like things were kind of more so falling into place and also, you know, on top of that, anytime I'd be on tour and somebody would want to talk to me about the show as opposed to like talk to me about touche stuff, which I'm of course always happy to do, but like to have someone come and be like, "Hey, by the way, I really like the show." That is always um something that secures it for me where I'm like, "Oh, wow, okay, people are listening." Cuz you know, you know that, you know as well as anybody like analytics are one thing, but you know, a lot of times it could just kind of feel like numbers, whereas opposed to like without realizing like, oh, that's a person who spent the time to listen to this entire episode and they actually want to talk to me about it. Like that is incredibly, incredibly rewarding. So I think that's my answer. Yeah. A few I kind of rambled in there a little bit, but I think I got my point across. I think. No, I don't think you rambled at all. I think I think you uh, succinctly answered the question. And I, I think that that's really cool that, uh, it, it's another thing that you're able to relate to people with, you know, and, uh, and that's always the coolest thing about anything that we do, whether it's music or, or whatever else, it's that you build those connections with people and you go out in the world and it's not just the zoom call anymore. You know, it's the, right. the real life interaction. So if that's a segue for someone to come up to you and say, Hey, I listened to your show. And now you and that person have something immediately in common. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And it's, it's what I love most about anything that I do. And I'm sure you feel the same way. Absolutely. It's been kind of, it's kind of a fun icebreaker, a couple, it's been a fun icebreaker a couple times too, where I've interviewed people that I'm about to go on tour with that I've never met. So then it's like, you know, I'm getting to know your vibe before we hit the road. And and that's also kind of a nice thing that I've been able to, to leverage for uh, just feeling comfortable around people, you know? Absolutely. Thanks, Ryan. We did it. We did it, baby. To everybody listening, thank you so much uh, for for sticking with me and and still and and tuning in every week or every other week or whenever you decide to come in. Um, it means a lot. And uh, to have these questions come in we're, was very very thoughtful. Um, and uh, we're not slowing down, are we, Ryan? Never stopping. <laughs> as long as there's firsties in the stable, we're gonna keep pouring that fresh water for you. Don't you worry. Awesome. Awesome. And that is our show. Thank you so much to all of you for the wonderful questions, the very thoughtful questions. And thank you to Ryan for being my co-host, for being my editor, for making this episode sound so great shout out to him forever and uh reminder if you want to support the show head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever patreon and now without further ado here is my dad telling me why my name is jeremy
Take care. Bye-bye. Back when I was working at Vitronics, uh, I one of my really, you know, one of the really cool guys, uh, his name was Barry Cullen, and he and his wife had a baby, and they named it Jeremy. And, you know, we, you know, we were, you know, friends and things like that, and I thought, well, what, that's really cool. Because back when you were named Jeremy, there wasn't a lot of Jeremys. Right. And... So anyway, um, that's how you got your name was uh, Barry Cohen, Barry and Nancy Cohen named their uh, their first boy, Jeremy. So that's how you got your name. Okay, so it was just a name that you both thought was just a cool name. Yeah, it was a cool name. Yeah, I mean, the rest, unfortunately, the rest of your name is all family.